0: Hello, and welcome to episode two of Tell Me a Story, where we take poems, essays, and short stories from the Chill Filter Review, and we bring them to you audiobook style. Most of our readings are done by our team of talented voiceover artists, and every now and then, I will read one myself. I'm your host, Krister Axel. Today, our theme is hardship and heroism. How do we know who the heroes are in our own lives, and what exactly is heroism. What does it even look like? We will discuss what it means to be a figure of authority, and how we can earn the privilege of being looked up to. Our first story comes to us from Sophia A. Benning, who studies journalism, creative writing, and musicology at Northwestern University. She is the first Singaporean recipient of the Keats Shelley Young Romantics Prize. Forever Six Letters is an essay about birds, crosswords, her country's mascot, and what they all have to do with the death of her grandfather. Read by Jenny Stanley.
1: My grandfather was a scarecrow, but he didn't know it. His days were spent reclined in a red leather chair, a thin white shirt, and dark brown sarong, hugging his emaciated frame. On his lap would either be a crumbled issue of Berita, Harrion from three days ago, a fraying book of crossword puzzles, or our old cat Toby. The hours would pass, the world around him would begrudgingly fry underneath the merciless Singapore sun, and he'd still be there in his chair next to the windows, wizened and deep in thoughts that no one could hear, occasionally reaching for his mug of lukewarm tay, or loudly saying Toby's name, although I'm not sure if the latter was a beckoning or a reminder. His morning routine was always the same. Wake up, take a shower, go to his red chair. For a while he would join us at the table before retiring to his favorite spot. Good morning, he'd crow, his voice rich and creaky with the woody, quivering timbre of old age. He'd sit and gawk as food was placed in front of him, and every morning it was the same. Wow, for me? he'd ask, incredulous like he couldn't fathom that a meal had been prepared just for him. And every morning after eating his food, he'd amble up the stairs, always making sure to give us a friendly smile and say thank you, like a satisfied patron leaving a restaurant. After some time, he couldn't descend the stairs to join us at the table anymore, and we'd have to bring his breakfast to his red chair. My grandfather would stare at the measly portion of kaya toast and now every morning he'd say to me, ''I can't eat all that,'' opting instead to furrow his brows at the black-and-white squares of a crossword puzzle, ignoring how his wristwatch freely slid down his wisp of an arm. ''There are always birds around our apartment. Sometimes they're loud enough to jolt me out of my sleep. Recently I've learned that they're minas. javan minas, to be exact.'' These birds are black with white accents, a yellow beak, yellow legs, and yellow eyes. And they're everywhere. One time I saw one nick a whole drumstick off a person's plate when they were looking elsewhere. Another time I saw one dragging a balloon down a street in Little India. Another time I saw a bunch of them picking at the corpse of one of their friends. A town council tried to shoo them off a tree by slathering the branches with an unpleasant spicy gel, but the miners fought back by putting leaves and twigs on top of it. These birds feared nothing and no one. Eventually, my dad had to intervene with my grandfather's refusal to eat. He'd sit beside him, watching him try to force pieces of bread into his brittle matchstick body. My dad would be patient and pleading on some days, frustrated and firm on others, while my grandfather would laugh, confused because he can't imagine that he ever enjoyed the stuff on this plate before. "'Please, you have to eat, Pa,' my dad begged, tiredness dripping from his voice. "'It's marmalade toast, your favorite!' "'Favorite,' my grandfather repeated probably visualizing the word in black and white squares. When I was young, I was afraid of the Merlion. The Merlion is our country's national mascot, a frightening fusion of a fish and a lion. A famous 30-foot statue of it looms over the Singapore River, yawning, its toothed mouth spewing gallons of water back where they came from. I never liked this creature. Don't be scared, girl, my teacher told me on one of our field trips to Ogle at the Giant Nightmare. The Merlion is a symbol of progress. The statue watches over Singapore's flashiest shrines to wealth and opulence. My teacher said that it's smiling because of how far we've come as a country. I've always thought that it looks extremely pissed off. I'd be mad, too, if I had the head of a lion and the body of a fish. Imagine having the urge to hunt and roam the grassy plains, only to realize that the best you can do is wiggle and flop around in the dirt. The birds came in torrents after my grandfather died. Once the red chair was empty, black and yellow miners began thronging to our windows. They'd actually enter the apartment, hopping about on our floors, screeching and chirping until one of us would curse at them, flailing our arms about in an attempt to frighten them off although nothing we did ever deterred them from returning, over and over again. I felt like I was in a Hitchcock movie, although the Hitchcock movie failed to unveil the true terror that lies in the wake of a flock of birds. Shit. It was cruel. It was sick. It was everywhere. As I scrubbed more bird shit from the lid of my childhood toy box, I couldn't help but wonder if this was one of those things where a relative dies and they come to visit you in the form of an animal to try to tell you something important. I'd read on the internet about a woman whose mother died and every day a bright blue butterfly would keep her company in her garden, always landing on her hand and staying there as the sun set. Well, Grandpa... I don't know what you're saying, but if you're disappointed in me, I'm getting it loud and clear. Towards the end of his life, my grandfather's dementia made it impossible for him to do nearly anything without help. My father devoted nearly all his time to taking care of his dad, including helping him take showers. My grandfather didn't seem to remember how to do that anymore. I'd hear my father, exasperated and worn over the sound of gushing, flowing water going over all the steps of showering, giving instructions like one would to an infant, reminding his dad how to dispense the shampoo, where it goes, rub it into your hair, yes, your hair, Pa. Wait, Pa, where are you going? Don't go to the toilet, you still haven't rinsed the shampoo. You need to rinse the shampoo. The shampoo! Later that night, my father sighed. If I ever get like that, If you see me even start to get like that, pull the plug for me. My mother would get angry and teary-eyed, begging him not to talk about such things. I knew that both of them were full of fear. One feared death while the other feared living like death had already come. I thought that Minas feared nothing and no one. I think I was wrong because not even jets of water, not even cats, not even swattings by rolled up newspapers could keep them out of our house like my grandfather did. Our apartment's fearsome scarecrow. I'd sit on the sofa next to his red chair, watching him do his crosswords. I watched him fill boxes, letter by letter. Grandpa, do you want anything to drink? I asked. He turned to look at me, mildly surprised. A small smile on his face, like he'd just ran into an old friend. Drink, Grandpa. Do you want tea? I asked. He returned to his puzzle. I helped him with one of the words. Smart girl, he said like he did since I was a toddler. Within a few minutes I had to help him walk to the bathroom. His feet shuffled listlessly, and my hand around his waist felt nothing but bone. We passed by the cat. Toby, my grandfather stated, head of a lion, body of a fish. I still can't do crosswords as fast as my grandfather did. If you ever visit the Merlion statue on the Singapore River, you just might see a group of minas atop its head. I wonder what they think about when they're up there. Are they scared at all? Thousands of tourists and visitors flock to the statue every day. Their cacophonous yells and the sound of their camera shutters battling with the roars of the Merlion's gushing water. But the minas stay put. I've tried sitting in my grandfather's red chair, taking his place as our apartment scarecrow, but the damn birds still come. My grandfather once wandered off on his own, and after a two-hour search, I found him at another apartment block, staring at the elevator that led to a home that wasn't ours. I wanted to go up, he explained, when I found him, but I thought I'd wait for you and we could go home together. I wonder if my grandfather ever felt fear in the last few months of his life. We definitely did, whether it was the fear that he might slip and fall, that he'd become unable to eat and drink, that he'd sleep the wrong way and silently choke, but I think our biggest fear was that he'd forget who we were. He didn't. Moments before he passed away on his hospital bed, I held his hand, and although he couldn't speak, there was a smile in his eyes, like he'd just seen an old friend. Maybe he didn't feel fear because although the little things didn't make sense to him anymore, like forks and knives, like fine-tooth combs, like paper clips and magnets, we still did. Maybe, when he looked at us, he saw our names fill up black and white boxes in his mind.
0: I like that story because... I enjoy the character of the grandfather very much. I think an important component of heroism is the ability to go your own way, to shut out the influences and the outside forces in your own life that hold you back, that keep you from your true path. In that sense, the grandfather's heroism was almost accidental. He just was who he was. But the role he played you know, in his chair every day just so happens to also be a form of protection for his family, of course from the birds, but also as a way of bringing peace and what many heroes and good leaders do, which is create a focal point for those around them to be their best selves. I think there's a lot We can learn from that story. Next we have a poem. We've got two poems from this artist on this episode. His name is Alan Cohen and he is a poet first, then PCMD teacher and manager living a full varied life. After writing poems all his life, he is beginning now to share some of his discoveries. He lives in Eugene, Oregon and this one is called Spring Song with a reading by Hussein Ali Aslan.
2: It's spring, at last it's spring. Stand with me and look down, Down with the spray, look up, up with the waver and warmth. If this is not spring, what can shimmy on a branch? If this is not love, what can burst inside a cloud? If compassion does not flower, what can prosper in a day? Yelling to the factory workers that spring has come yelling about the passion of the falls yelling trying to sail into a cloud a rose cloud crazy as a water bird crazy as a well a fragrance a sorrow i tell you it's spring and no farther fear or occupation will root me in the soil i have eaten winter long and long out of the ground like a throstle. She were with me. What, all life a sequence Stumble, break your leg, lose your heart. Climb spring like a mountain goat. Stare into the avalanche. Be a bit more sturdy and daring and wonderful. Hold a new leaf. Wash your face in the cold brook. Sprint down the banks open your arms it's spring are you not awake why breathe if you want hear this joy starting like a madrigal from the earth where's your voice shout your throat horse scandalized neighbors it's spring at last it's spring
0: I think sometimes we just need to be our own inspiration, especially right now. It's nice to hear a little bit of pure childish joy, which is, of course, the best kind. We are going to hear one more poem from Alan later on in this episode, but next we've got a story that mixes heroism with a little bit of fantasy, or you might call it metaphysics new age spirituality. I don't want to ruin the surprise, so I will say nothing more. This one comes to us from David P. Rogers, and it tells the story of people connecting with each other. It's called Numbers, and the reading is by Christian Brew.
3: Everyone respected Miss Liza, as she was known to friends. Almost everybody was her friend. Anyone who wasn't friends with Miss Liza kept quiet about it. She had operated the telephone switchboard in the village of Red Barn Corners for 40 years. So when she passed into the great beyond, everyone felt a loss. Reverend Wordwin spoke of how Miss Elizabeth Jane Standish represented the best of Red Barn, as ones who grew up there called it. A few, mostly ones from somewhere else, said the switchboard, the whole system in fact, should now be upgraded. Words like fibre optics and digital were briefly fashionable, especially among young people. Soon the world's communications would be operated by machines that talked to other machines, including satellites, all by themselves. No need for humans to be involved at all. Machines that were smarter than people would operate the system. The boldest new voices said phones would someday be little things people carried around in their pockets. No wires needed. Like communicators used on Star Trek. Few in Red Barn paid them any mind. Those who did said, if it was good enough for Mum and Dad and Grams and Gramps and Miss Liza, it's good enough for us. So the old system, the board with patch cords and flashing lights and party lines, stayed just as it had been for decades. Sylvie Carter stared at the dinosaur made of plywood and fraying copper wires, the creaky wheeled oak office chair that sat in front of it. Labels on the switchboard were faded or entirely missing. The essentials recorded for decades in the only place Miss Liza had needed them. Her memory. No matter, Sylvie thought. I'll figure it out. Which she did. By the end of the second night, she was patching calls through as easily as breathing. By the end of the first week, she was actually a little bored. So she brought a book. Who Goes There?, By someone called John W. Campbell. On the Monday of Sylvie's second week, Francie, the day operator, said, The board's had a mind of its own, all afternoon. Probably a storm brewing west of here. Lightning plays havoc with the lines, you know. Mind of its own? Like how? Sylvie asked. Ghost calls. I, um, I don't know what those are. Oh, just static, phantom calls, like someone's trying to ring through, but no one's there. Pranks. Not from these lines. Reverend Wordwin, Judge Matthews, the police station, they don't joke around. So what do I do about it? Francie shrugged. If it's a real call, you put it through. Otherwise, um... Francie let her voice trail off. Otherwise what? Sylvie asked. A little impatient, Francie glanced around. They were alone. The switchboard was housed in the room adjacent to City Hall's old section, which was always deserted after five in the evening. Miss Liza used to tell me stories, Francie said, her tone hushed. Sometimes after midnight she told me she heard voices on the lines. Well, yeah, it's a phone system... Not ordinary voices, not normal voices. Francie was almost whispering now. Maybe not human. At least not living humans. Sylvie must have looked alarmed. Francie laughed. "'Well, it was all just stories. "'Like I said, probably a storm to the west, "'static on the line. "'It's like watching clouds. "'You can convince yourself you see anything "'if you look hard enough, "'or hear anything when it's quiet and dark "'and you think you're the only one awake in the whole world. "'But I shouldn't be trying to frighten you, "'especially when you're just getting settled in. "'Oh, I'm not frightened.' "'Sylvie said. I don't even believe in ghosts.' "'But her face said she did.' "'The call came about one,' Sylvie recalled the next day "'when Francie asked how her shift went. "'One in the morning,' Sylvie added with vague indignation in her voice. "'By then she had started to feel not like the only one awake.' but as if she were the last living person in the world. So at first she felt glad to talk to anyone. In Red Barn, decent folk were asleep by ten. Calls later than that were rare, mostly coming from the West Coast, where they didn't know how to keep good time, or the rare emergency. It had been suggested that a night operator was not needed at all, But of course, people quickly pointed out that something might happen without mentioning fires and heart attacks. No point borrowing trouble, but better safe than sorry. Everyone knew it was so. If a cliché was true, nobody questioned it but fools and children. So I said we have no such number, Sylvie said, and I disconnected. What did the caller sound like, man or woman, young or old? Francie wanted to know. Man. Not a kid. Not old, but older, I'd say. Older than me, I mean. Where was he calling from? Was there another operator on the line? No, just that voice. And it sounded far off. I asked him where he was calling from, but he wouldn't say. Just repeated the number. That was when I disconnected. I mean, the lines have to be kept open in case there's an emergency, right? After that, it was all quiet. Very quiet. Sylvie thought of the phrase pregnant silence, which a certain kind of writer might use to build suspense. It turned up often in the romance novels Sylvie's mother used to read. She'd always thought that language was a way to cheat, but now she found it described very well the spaces between the hum that faded in and out and the occasional faint crackle of static. And still the voice did not tell her where it was calling from. She didn't say all that to Francie, though. ''Of course, you did the right thing,'' Francie said. ''There's always a joker or insomniac somewhere who wants to call the operator and talk about nothing.'' Well, he called again and he asked to speak to Miss Liza. I told him that wasn't very funny, not with the grass not even grown over her spot in the cemetery yet. Maybe he didn't know she had passed on, Francie said. Oh, he knew, Sylvie said. She could not have explained how she knew that he knew, but she did. So then he asked to be connected to another number, an exchange nobody around here ever asks for. I couldn't even find it in the books. What was the number? 3141592653, Sylvie said promptly. For some reason, she couldn't forget it. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Not sure why, Francie said. But it's not for anywhere near here. That's what I told him. He kept insisting, almost rude. So I asked if he was trying to make an international call. He just laughed and hung up. The next night, the voice from nowhere, as Sylvie came to think of it, called back. Do you know what happens when someone dials a phone? The voice asked, without preamble. Who is this? Sylvie demanded. No answer. Listen, mister, she said. It's illegal to make prank calls to the operator. Are you trying to reach a number? Sylvie was not sure about the legal point, but she had a vague notion she was right. Undeterred, the voice went on. Each time you pull your finger around, you harness a little current of electricity... You generate a tiny bolt of lightning and you unleash it. That lightning is sent out on the lines. Where does it go? The voice paused, as if waiting for an answer. Sylvie started to respond. Maybe if she kept him talking, he'd let something slip. Maybe she could find out who he was, where the calls were coming from. But before she could decide what to say, the voice went on. Electricity has to go somewhere. It cannot just disappear. That's a scientific fact, a matter of physics. Energy never vanishes. It's still out there, somewhere, forever. Every call ever made, every number ever dialed, they never die. So where do they go? They cannot simply cease to exist. The laws of physics forbid that. Energy and matter can be transformed, but never destroyed. Right? So what do you want me to do about it? She almost asked, but instead said, Give me your name, please. Someone here wants to talk to you. She will call you tomorrow night. Silence ensued, the deep silence of the void. Shortly, the ordinary hum of the line returned. The next day, Sylvie told no one, not even Francie, about it. By the end of her second week... Sylvie was beginning to adjust pretty well to long nights and sleeping in the daytime, but she found coffee and spine-tingling stories could do only so much to keep drowsiness at bay. So she brought her little transistor radio along. Stations faded in and out, but at least fiddling with the tuner kept her hands busy and her eyes open. Sylvie tried to decide what she felt as the sun went down and the room darkened, She got up to turn on lights and close the blinds. The little parking lot behind City Hall was empty and again she had the feeling of being the last person in the world. Time passed. Sylvie read Edgar Allan Poe's MS Found in a Bottle and listened to a radio station that played old jazz records. The voice called again. Of course, this time at four past midnight. Operator, Sylvie said. Long distance from, the voice said, a blast of static blotting out the origin of the call. Please hold while I connect you. That's supposed to be my line, Sylvie thought. But the rattle and click in the headset grew so loud she pulled the speaker away from her ear till it quieted. I finally got through to the number you did not connect me with, the voice said. What number? Sylvie asked, as if she'd forgotten. What operator connected you? There are other operators than you, the voice said. What operator? But the voice only repeated. Hold while I connect you. Hello, dear, a woman's voice said. Are you treating my board kindly and with respect? Who is this? Sylvia asked. Oh, you know who I am, Sylvia Thomas? How many of your calls with that Franklin girl when you were 15 did I pretend not to notice? Who was the man who just called? Oh, he's nobody, the woman's voice said. Well, everybody's somebody. He helps out with newcomers, tries to help people adjust. Not exactly nobody and really very kind. He thinks he's in charge, (laughs) though nobody elected him. I used to talk to him now and then, when I ran the board. Has he been bothering you? I don't know. Anyway, don't let him distract you. A lot of people depend on you, you know. Who is this? Sylvie demanded. You know very well who I am. You sound like Miss Liza, which is not funny at all. Mary McCarthy, if this is your idea of a joke, I'm going to report you. You have done your due diligence, dear, the woman's voice said. A good operator puts up with no nonsense. I remember the first call I got from beyond, like it was yesterday. I did not believe it either. Not at first, but you are part of a web now. A net, a system so big, so far-reaching, you cannot imagine. You have to respect the system and demand others respect it too. "'But I called to tell you something, and you must listen. It's important.' "'I'm going to disconnect you now, Mary.' "'All right. I'll prove that I'm Miss Liza. Pull out the middle left drawer of the desk. Look in the very back.' Sylvie would later think back to that moment as the turning point. "'If she had hung up instead of opening that drawer, what difference might it have made?' But her right hand paused, halfway to disconnecting, and her left hand reached for the drawer. ''Pull it almost all the way out, till it's about to fall. Look behind the back panel. There's a little secret space there, with half a pint of very good gin. It's yours now. I know how long and lonely some of those nights at the board can be.'' Sylvie looked at the back of the drawer, now canting dangerously downward. Sure enough, a small bottle of Bombay Sapphire was tucked away in the corner. That proves nothing. Anybody could have put that there. Anybody didn't, though. I did. But enough of that. I really need to tell you something. Miss Liza's voice, if it was Miss Liza, and Sylvie was certainly not convinced, dropped to a whisper. There'll be a tornado. It will hit Red Barn. When? Where? Sylvie asked, in spite of herself. Summers, she thought. There are always tornadoes somewhere, and earthquakes, and fires. I'm not sure when. Not yet. In fact, I'm not even supposed to know. They don't share sensitive information right away with newcomers. The temptation to interfere is too great, they say. We're supposed to concentrate on letting go. Let the living deal with things on their own. "'But I've made some friends who know things. "'I was always good at making friends, just like you.' "'What will the tornado hit?' Sylvie asked. "'I'm daring you to prove this is not a very bad joke.' "'That's just it, dear.' "'The voice of Miss Liza dropped lower still. "'The school. I know it will hit the school. "'That's why I had to tell you. "'What if the children are all there?' "'There's nothing I can do.' ''I know. You have to know when. I'll call you when I find out. They may punish me for telling, but...'' Another sudden blast of static, followed by a sound of scuffling. Then, silence. ''Who are they?'' Sylvie asked the silence and got no answer. Sylvie poured a capful of the gin in her coffee and pondered, ''How could you punish a ghost who told secrets to the living? And why?'' She finished her coffee, poured a refill, added another capful of gin and continued wondering. By dawn, she still had no answers, except to tell herself it was all a bad joke. She found that increasingly hard to believe. Otherwise, it was a quiet night. Sylvie told no one about the call. No point in being labelled a lunatic. What would I say? There will be a tornado, a ghost told me. At least I think she was a ghost. No, she didn't say when. The twister came the very next afternoon. The biggest anyone in Red Barn had ever seen. Everyone said so. The school would have to be rebuilt entirely, but no one died. Just good luck. Or the hand of Providence, Reverend Wordwind insisted, that it came at 4.30 in the afternoon when even the janitor had gone home for the day. Providence, the Reverend repeated whenever the subject came up. Sylvie figured she was not alone in wondering what Providence had against schools, even empty ones, but she was too polite to ask. Those kinds of questions were frowned on in red barn corners. The switchboard was busy that evening with relatives from all over the country calling to check on the safety of family and friends to get news and gossip. By one in the morning, things slowed. Sylvie ate her midnight snack, still refusing to call it lunch, and waited for a call from a ghost. It never came. When dawn started to light the sky, Sylvie poured a cup and a cap as she started to think of gin and coffee, stored the still, nearly full bottle in its spot in the back of the drawer and said aloud, Here's to you, Miss Liza, wherever you are. Hope you didn't get in too much trouble.
0: I think there's something fun and creative about the idea of sacrificing ourselves for the greater good, even in the afterlife you can make the argument that heroism is simply doing the right thing. Maybe it's just another word for looking out for the greater good. I also think there is something to be said for self-care, for the deep understanding that we can't help anyone if we are not whole ourselves. And that's the concept that we are going to close out with This last poem is again from Alan Cohen. It's called Letting Loss In, and it deals with that process of being hurt and waking up the next day to be our own best friend. Sometimes the heroism has to come from within. Watching the earth movers change the landscape, I open the window and let loss into the room. Never again's from every era of the past. The line drive off the left field wall, evil jungle shrimp, Karen's hesitant, once might have been my wife kiss, the garden at Tivoli, the chocolate bakery. W.L.G.S. at $7, that first reading of the waves. In life's late afternoon, there's still a flood of light. We may see the limp balloons of the morning glory in among the brighter flowers, but the transcendent light of evening is still ahead. There is no crisis, but once we acknowledge loss, we look too for something fresh. Something new, some flower, face, or gesture to take into our hearts, knowing it should outlive us as we have the things we mourn. The concussion of the trucks scatters a lovely apricot dust, softening the sunlight. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me a Story. You can hear new episodes of Tell Me a Story every other weekend, airing on Chill Filter Radio, both Fridays and Saturdays at 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. Pacific Time. We also post new episodes to our podcast, which you can find on Apple, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you would like to submit your work to be featured on this podcast, just visit us at chillfilter.com and click the link that says Write for Us. My name is Christer Axel. Thanks for tuning in. There's a weightless fire inside of me.